One of the things I miss most from life prior to the pandemic is being able to go see movies in theaters. This could be seeing Guardians of the Galaxy at a special midnight pre-release screening and subsequently getting obsessed with Groot. I'm Groot. Or it could be going to the IFC Center in the West Village and going to a Q&A with director Bong Joon-ho at the US premiere of his best picture winning film, Parasite. These are some of my favorite memories here in New York City. In particular, I love animated films, be they hand-drawn animations from Japan or CG films from Pixar. I think these films are so much more than just for kids, between the technical work and dedication involved to the mature storylines and themes layered throughout. Stop-motion animation especially impresses me with the fact that I am watching a handcrafted puppet on a physical set being imperceptibly moved between each of the 24 frames per second to give the illusion of movement. Somebody spent dozens if not hundreds of hours designing and crafting each detail on screen because they felt that is the only way to tell the story I am seeing. And they executed with such precision that I forget that they are inanimate objects and I fully believe they've come to life in front of my eyes. In the world of stop motion animation, there is one studio, head and shoulders and pretty much the entire body above the rest. Studio Leica out of Oregon. You may know them for their 2009 dark fantasy horror film Coraline. Or maybe you know them for their 2016 action fantasy film Kubo and the Two Strings. Or maybe you know them for last year's Missing Link, which beat out Toy Story 4 and Frozen 2 to win the Golden Globe for Best Animated Film, the first ever non-computer generated film to do so. And the Golden Globe goes to... Missing Link. Whatever the case, you should definitely stick around and watch the credits of any studio like a film. Not only do they sew the behind-the-scenes process of animating the puppets, you'll probably notice a very familiar name in the credits, one of our classmates who worked on their two most recent films. That's right, we have a classmate who was part of the team that won a Golden Globe. Just another example of the Stanton College Prep Class of 2010 running things as usual. Hello and welcome to the We Run This Podcast, a show celebrating the stories of the Stanton College Prep, Class of 2010, and how we continue to kill it 10 years on. I'm Paula Bautista. on the outside of the character is something that we don't get for free. So if you look down at your clothes right now, you've got a lot of free folds happening. Maybe you got some sweat stains. We're just outside in the hot sun, right? So those were some free stains. Uh, maybe you were at, at lunch and you got some free pizza stains. Well, all of those things happen naturally. But if we want those natural things on our puppets, we have to engineer and plan them into them. So every This is a clip of Austin Weitzel at the Studio Leica booth at San Diego Comic-Con 2018 giving a presentation on how Studio Leica constructs their puppets and describing how much work goes into each and every detail. Hi, my name is Austin Weitzel. I am a puppet fabricator at Leica and I live out in Oregon. Now, some of you may remember Austin primarily for his time in the black box or the theater department back at Stanton. 
I feel like I was a pretty shy person going into high school. And a lot of my friends that were really outgoing were all in theater. And they said that it really helped with their confidence as far as talking to people. And that's, I mean, that's really why I joined was I wanted a forced interaction that would help me break out of that shell. And I, I think for the most part, it worked. We did a production of Godspell. We did a production of Lucky Stiff. That was fun. I got to do a fun accent for that one. There was a, a production of 1776. Somebody dropped out three days before the show, so I had to learn the show in three days. As part of the theater department, he participated in Districts, the regional and state-level thespian competition. One of his performances at Districts would start him down his eventual career path. It involved a performance of a song from the off-Broadway play Avenue Q. Think of it like Sesame Street, but for adults. I made a couple of Sesame Street style puppets for that, and that did really well at Districts. So we performed If You Were Gay. It was me and Alex Johnson. Well, okay. But just so you know, if you were gay, that'd be okay. I mean, cause hey, I like you anyway, because you see, if it were me, I would feel free to say that I was gay, but I'm not gay. So we did the song, and it performed really well. We won Critics' Choice at the district level, and then we went on to perform at State. But... A lot of people saw that in our district, and so other other theaters were reaching out to me and asking me, like, hey, would you build this? Would you do that? I did a puppet for Fuddy Mears. Um, I, I did puppets for different shows. At the time, it was really frustrating because I wanted to be, I wanted to act, and I wanted to be known for my acting, and it's like, oh, you're the puppet guy, and that was really frustrating. But lo and behold, now, that's what I do for a living. <laughs> After graduation, Austin moved out of Florida to go to art school. Now, at art school, students' finals aren't written exams, but are usually installations and exhibitions that display the work that they've been working on for the past year for others to see. So I moved up to Baltimore, Maryland, and I studied at the Maryland Institute College of Art. And I studied sculpture for the most part while I was there. So my sophomore year, I also did a piece called Stop, Stay, Dream. I basically had a gallery space right off of a library. And so I built for a month, there was a a large animatronic monster that was sleeping. And there was a girl that I sculpted that was nestled up in the crook of the monster's arm holding a jar that had a firefly in it. Um, I really wanted to basically do an illustration but make it three-dimensional, something that you could walk into. And the response was overwhelming. People basically saying things like, I come here every day. This is one of the, the most relaxing places on campus. I just feel very relaxed and humble here. And I remember on the day that I, I was cleaning up the show, I was like painting the walls and, and taking stuff down. There was like a kid, like maybe five years old, that ran into the space, excited, and then turned around and started crying and ran out. And I was like, what happened? And their mom came up to me and basically was like, we've been coming here every day for the past two weeks. Now, there are many different ways to pursue life as an artist. For Austin, he was interested in being what he describes as a career artist, working for a company that pays a steady salary for his skill at making things in an artistic manner, such as working at a movie studio or a prop shop. Not to say there's anything wrong with being what he calls a conceptual artist, of course, but he did find some tension in his classes that focused more on the concept and ideas behind pieces as opposed to giving constructive feedback on how to better build and execute his works. This spilled over into a particularly contentious senior year. Going into my senior year, I knew I wanted a job working where I am now. And I was fortunate enough to meet two of the heads of the studio and then I showed them my work and they were like, Austin, your work is pretty, it's pretty nice, but it is way too big 
for what we do, we make miniatures. So if you wanted to be taken seriously at this kind of job, you need to make work that's closer in size to what we do. So going back to school in my senior year, I was like, all right, I'm going to make a stop motion animation, make small puppets and, and go for that. And when I basically outlined what I wanted to do to some of my teachers that were in the animation department, they told me that my work was too complicated and too advanced and that I would inspire other students to make work that they couldn't handle. Like I, I strongly believe anyone can make anything that they want to. You just have to have the drive to overcome whatever challenges you run into. So so I I was really frustrated when I heard them say, like, we don't want you to do this because you'll inspire people and we don't want that. I basically went to my um, the person who helped me with my my course choosing at the time. And I I sat down with them and was like, I don't want to run into these kinds of issues as I'm making this project. I just want to be able to make it and make it to the best of my abilities. Like, I'm really driven. I want to do this. And so they helped me like get in contact with um, Jason Karachi, who was a the head of the IDA department, which is Interaction Design and Arts. And he was like, yeah, man, you sound motivated. Let's do it. So he took my course load that I'd already learned and then just like crossed out the names of everything and made them count for all the prerequisites for this major. I graduated with a degree that really wasn't what I learned at school. Uh, so I could make this project. Basically a gamble. I did like a big gamble with my, with my degree. The final product was his short film, Sky Whale. It's a beautiful, wordless story done in stop motion of a boy and a girl who have a mystic encounter with a flying whale. I'll link it in the show notes, but you should definitely check it out, as my words alone won't do it justice. Nor can my words adequately describe what he had to do in order to produce it. So like, I'd never done stop motion before. I'd never made a stop motion puppet. So I learned how to make armatures. I learned how to, to wire things to that degree. I taught myself how to 3D model and ended up printing about 200 to 250 3D printed replacement faces. And then I would hand paint them all. So I hand painted all the faces to try and match them as much as I could. And I had had another five minutes of animation planned, but given that was way too much for one student to try and do in a year, but I, I did my best. That gamble and hard work of believing in himself paid off against the odds, despite what the haters thought. And in the middle of our finals, I got a call from Laika saying, like, hey, come out and work with us. I can remember my parents had come. They'd flown up from Florida to come see my work. I had been telling them, like, I'm trying to get this job, I'm trying to get this job. And I remember one of my teachers being, like, telling them, like, taking them aside and being like, this is a really prestigious job, like, don't let him get his hopes up because there's not really a chance. And like the next day I got a call from them saying like, come and work with us. It was really, it was nice. It made me feel like I can actually do this as a career. And now, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, I love Studio Lyco and all of their films. So the inner geek in me had to ask him, what's it like working for Studio Lyca? They are obsessed with perfection. I think for most other studios, you make it and you're basically done. Whereas Lyca is obsessed with having things be perfectly made. And every film, we have to reinvent the wheel. They never want us to use the same techniques twice. So as like an artist, it's a dream job in the sense that like you are constantly asked to push the envelope on what you can create and how you create it. And you're given like your choice of what materials you want to explore and how to explore them. When Austin joined Studio Laika in 2014, he came in on production of the 2016 film Kubo and the Two Strings. My name is Kubo. I look after my mother mostly. 
What was father like? He was just like you. Strong and so handsome. <laughs> Mother. <laughs> I use magic to tell stories. If you must blink, do it now. About epic battles, warriors, and monsters. The movie tells the story of a boy who goes on an adventure with a monkey and a giant beetle to solve the mystery of his samurai father while fighting off monsters and spirits along the way. It's fantastic. You really should go watch it if you haven't seen it yet. Or go rewatch it if you have. Now that you know Austin has worked on it, keep an eye out for some of his contributions. I really did a little bit of everything on Kubo. Like when I started, I was jumping between departments, kind of helping wherever I could. So I made a lot of costumes on Kubo, or I helped with a lot of costumes. I was one of the two people that made the capes of the his aunts. Mm-hmm. If you remember the film, like there are these feathered capes, the skeletons of which are based on like stingray skeletons. Each one took about 100 hours to make and two people working on it at the same time, attaching feathers. And that's to make a cape. Wow. And so that's one aspect of the whole puppet. He's referring to two characters, Kubo's otherworldly aunts. In their first appearance, they appear menacingly out of the darkness and nighttime fog. Those capes that Austin worked on for hundreds of hours, they're draped over their slim figures as they eerily float above the lake, their voices echoing as they taunt Kubo before attacking. Little boy, what happened to your eye? Who are you? How do you know my name? We are your family, Kubo. Your mother's sisters. And we've been looking for you so long. It's so lovely to meet you, Kubo. Face to face. Austin not only worked on the costumes that go on the puppets, but on some of the puppets themselves. Specifically, he worked on the puppet of the main character, Monkey. I made a lot of the monkeys. And so that sounds weird. Like when you watch a film, you see one monkey. But in actuality, we make many identical copies of each of our characters so that they can be on different stages, all shooting at the same time. So for instance, Monkey, I think we had 16 of her that we built. My department made her pretty much from the ground up outside of her armature. We did like a muscle suit in the traditional sense that like, like you do with live action. And we skinned her with um, with like a faux fur and then basically applied silicone in layers and then hand trimmed her fur in. So I made three monkeys out of the 16. Now, Kubo did win a BAFTA award for best animated film, but like his next film, Missing Link, would be the one that would go on to win the Golden Globe for best animated film, as I mentioned at the top of the show. Legend tells of a lost species, a link between man and beast. For centuries, he's lived in hiding, but at long last, he's reaching out and ready to be found. It's still there. Excuse me. Hi. You can speak. Missing Link follows the story of British explorer Lionel Faust, voiced by Hugh Jackman, as he discovers the missing link between man and beast, the Sasquatch, also known as Susan, voiced by Zach Galifianakis. And as much as I enjoyed the technical expertise behind it, no one, including myself, expected Missing Link to win any awards due to the usual dominance of Disney films in these kind of awards. Not even Austin or the team at Leica expected it. It was really a shock. 
unfortunately, we released Missing Link pretty much around the same time that Avengers Endgame came out. It did really poorly in the box office. And so to receive an award like that really shows that people looked at the artistry in that film. And that, that was really, it was really nice to hear that. One thing about Missing Link that stood out to me was the loving depiction of nature, especially that of the Pacific Northwest, where Laika and Austin are currently based. And it's one of his favorite things about living out there. Like, there is nature everywhere. Like, when you walk in the forest, there are waterfalls everywhere. Like, my favorite hike has 10 waterfalls on it. You're an hour from every biome, so I can go surfing out at the coast and then decide to go, like, sandboarding in the desert, like, a, like an hour south. People here just like to be outside as much as possible. And again, like the nature is everywhere. Like I, I went kayaking the other day. There was a huge eagle that swooped down right like right above me. Like I could feel the wind movement of it moving in front of me. I've been clipped by owls too, because oh, wow. owls get territorial. Those are really cool experiences that I've never had. I, I love being out here. This love for nature bleeds into his other art projects outside of work. If you check out his Instagram, you'll see amazing pieces of art that use the iridescent hues of arthropod exoskeletons kit-bashed together into something mythological. I, I'm really inspired by insects and fascinated by them. Such unique, beautiful forms from nature. Like I think insects and flowers tied together are where nature is the most creative. So I find them super inspiring. A lot of the friends I've made out here are entomologists. They've given me a lot of specimens that I've been able to sculpt with. I guess in those sculptures, what I've tried to do is make insects accessible as like, as exotic as they are to people that would never give them the time of day because they're bugs. If you look at them up close and actually take them for what they are, they are, in my opinion, like the mythological creatures on our, on our world. Like you can find dragons in praying mantises. You can find like unicorns in stag beetles. I try to do that. I try to take their shapes that are naturally found in nature, their colors, and recreate dragons. I've had a lot of people be like, I don't like bugs, but these are amazing. These are really cool. And I'm like, yeah, but those are bugs. Like, bugs are really cool. In fact, I mean, this is going to sound really nerdy, but the scientific name for an adult insect that undergoes a metamorphosis like that and grows wings is called an imago, mm-hmm. which comes from the like the, the word imagine, like literally the name for winged things that come from like these caterpillars is imagines. And I mean, I think that really speaks to my passion in them. Like it is it is hard for me to to picture how something can transform into something winged and beautiful like that. So like the caterpillar that grows up to spread its wings, how has Austin grown up over the last 10 years? In high school, I did theater. That was like my outlet for creativity, right? But I mean, I, I consider myself now to be an artist. I have to make things constantly. It's just written into my code. You know, I, if I'm not making something, then something feels wrong. I define myself as a maker. I've tried to learn to not doubt myself. So like I am, I am constantly encouraging the people around me, like you can do anything, but I don't really do that for myself. So in the past 10 years, I've really tried to come to terms with the fact that like, I, I really believe this. So if there's something I want to do, learn how to do it. When I was in high school, I never would have let myself raise insects or be as fascinated by them and trying to encourage other people because it's weird. You know, it's not something that everybody thinks is okay for some reason. But as I've grown older, I've stopped caring so much what other people think of me. And I've tried to really care more about like what actually fascinates me and bringing that back to the world. 
and delivering in a way that like the world can appreciate. That's all I can. That's all you really can do as an artist is try to give back something that inspires you so that you can inspire others. When we come back, another one of our classmates who went into art, who uses his talent to tackle issues of personal identity and challenge pre-existing power structures. That's after the break. Hey, Sound College Prep Class of 2010. I hope you're enjoying this series so far. I wish I could interview everyone about what inspires them, like how Austin is inspired by insects and nature. And while I can't do that personally for logistical reasons, you guys can submit a voice memo letting me know what you've been up to and what inspires you. Using the voice recording app on your phone, send me a one to two minute message with your name, where you're at, and what you've been up to. Send it to me on Facebook or via email at ninjaboymedia at gmail.com. That's N-I-N-J-A-B-O-I-M-E-D-I-A at gmail.com. Full email in the show notes. As an incentive, I'm going to be making a $10 donation for each submission to the Jacksonville Public Education Fund to support public education efforts in Duval County up to 20 submissions. Be sure to ask your friends who you think have great stories to send in a voice memo so the rest of the class can hear what they've been up to. All right, back to the show. Now, aside from solving Rubik's Cubes upside down during lunch, one of my other dear high school memories was getting involved with the Stanton Multicultural Extravaganza. Specifically, I was one of the dancers who brought Tinikling, the Filipino dance where you jump in and out between moving bamboo sticks, to Multi. It's really cool to see that they're still doing it 10 years on. Shout out to my co-captain Kayla Manonquill and to all of our dancers. In any case, the experience of embracing my Filipino-American culture led me to getting involved at my school's Filipino Student Association and really exploring my Filipino-American heritage, something that's still very important to me to this day. So when I first decided to do this podcast, I knew I had an excuse to catch up with one of our classmates who tackles topics around Filipino-American identity through his artwork. Hello, my name is Sherwin Rio. I am an interdisciplinary artist currently based in San Francisco, California. As I was thinking about my memories of high school, I, I don't think that there are really strong, particular one-off memories that I could like really bring up here. But the thing that was kind of bobbing at the surface of my memory was the way that I would like move around lunchtime. I, I felt like I was always moving and talking to different people and I could find different people who would invite me to like sit down with them, have a conversation and then totally be cool with me, like going to the next table and sitting down and being invited to have that conversation and move across to the courtyard, you know, or like move over by the gym where people were like sitting outside, you know? I felt like there was some sort of camaraderie there that was different. I think of myself back then, like as someone who moved in and out of different activities, like I like to flow sort of between different kind of social circles. I like to kind of spread myself across like different um, activities, different contexts, and uh, I think different attitudes. Like I, I felt like I had 
different inner transformations that I'd like key into. I feel like there was a bit of a, like a little bit of a scholar in there, a little bit of a performer. I feel like there was a little bit of disobedience, but I, I think more so uh, a dedication that I would like key into. And uh, there's definitely, I think also a little bit of a comedic prankster in me at the time. And I think of myself as someone who dreamed a lot. And uh, I dreamed at that time through performance and through art. Speaking of performances, in addition to performing in the Filipino dance on Multi, Serwin was also a member of Club Unity, the stand and step team. I remember being really excited to be in this like black and brown team, largely black and brown team. Like I, I felt like there was this sort of expression of identity. And although it comes from black culture, you know, our team in the city was known as this kind of like black and brown team at the time. And I, I found that to be ex- like really, really exciting to me. I loved like doing the uh, pep rallies. And I, I think a lot of myself at the time is being super shy. And I, I think that like really pushed me to express outwardly. And I think I, I ran with it. Sirwin not only danced, but he also made music as well. Freshman and sophomore year, he had a band with Alex Johnson that was called Remember This. And then in junior and senior year and into college, he and Mark Michaluzzi were part of an alternative pop punk band that had some local notoriety called Dancel. Um, I dreamed a lot about like being a musician and being an artist in songwriting. We played so many concerts, so many shows around the city and around Florida. And it, it, I, I had a lot of dreams of like doing something different, maybe pushing myself out of like the comfort zone of like going inward. You know, I think myself, myself as an artist, like so much of this is like delving into my own mind and heart and then needing to express that outwardly in hopes that other people might also do the same. That's where I like learned this kind of hard work DIY ethic of being an artist and like hustle and advocating for yourself and like materializing things when it wasn't happening, you know, when opportunities aren't given to you, you kind of have to like make your own opportunity at the time. And I feel like we did that with Dancel. And I think that that time back then really was transformative. After graduating Stanton, Serwin joined many of our classmates in Gainesville. Um, so after high school, I attended the uh, University of Florida and I did the four-year degree program, getting a Bachelor of Fine Arts in, um, in studio art I, with an emphasis in printmaking and a minor in art history. I mean, I was always hanging out in Mark Mark's house, you know, Mark lived with Corey Harb and Alex Johnson. And uh, there were other people that were like in and out of that house. And especially freshman and sophomore year, I would go over there and be there like all the time. I was like the unofficial roommate and I used it as my art studio, which looking back, if Mark and Alex Johnson, Corey Harvey, y'all are listening, thanks for letting me use <laughs> your house and your backyard and the different rooms in my house and the garage as my studio. It's like, it's, it's like an extended studio for me. Alex Johnson is really throwing up in a lot of these stories, isn't he? In any case, with his degree in hand, Serwin spent a bit more time in the Northeast Florida region, working as an artist assistant in Gainesville and working at Ready Arts in San Marco. Eventually, though, he would find his way to grad school over on the West Coast in the Bay Area. The sort of the last few projects I was doing as an artist in at UF was I was searching Filipino-American identity and Filipino-American art. I was having a really hard time, but I, I did come across this artist named Carlos Villa. I came across his website and his Wikipedia page, and that was kind of an open door. And I, I found out about the San Francisco Bay Area 
Filipino American arts movements that have happened here or just the arts community, you know, the art history that's deep here. After, after I did my BFA, my teacher asked me if I wanted to go to grad school and I was like, no, hell no, you know, I'm done with school. Uh, but after finding this like art enclave here, Filipino American artists, it, that, that pushed me. I it was determined to like learn more and root myself and root that, root that into my artwork. Now, you remember that hustle that Surin said he learned while pursuing music through Dancel? That would definitely come in handy, given how busy his life in the Bay Area would become. The school is the San Francisco Art Institute, the oldest school west of the Mississippi River. And so I moved to San Jose and was going to school in San Francisco. I would commute by bike and train uh, day in and day out. I eventually found a spot in the city. I was actually living out of a walk-in closet. And then a friend of mine gave me, they didn't give it to me, but they passed it on to me. Spot in the city, very small apartment. Uh, I was able to move into the city officially. And once I did that, I started to immediately work. I was commuting like three hours a day, like round trip. Now that that was out of the picture, like I could pick up work. I, I started working many jobs on campus. I started working many jobs off campus. And at the same time too, uh, as a student, I was also exhibiting my art a lot. I started to exhibit a lot on campus, but also off campus. I, I made it a priority to to show in different venues like crazy around the city. And, um, in 2019, I, I graduated uh, with a dual degree in MFA in studio arts and an MA in history and theory of contemporary arts. I ended up working for the estate of Carlos Villa and another artist estate, uh, the estate of Leo Valador, also a Filipino American artist, working in friends' studios and uh, working in friends' galleries and uh, still what I'm doing now. I'm currently an artist fellow at Headland Center for the Arts up in Marin, just across the Golden Gate Bridge. And ever since graduating too, I was given a residency through the National Sculpture Center in Frankfort, Kentucky, where I did a site-specific sculpture that's out there. Currently also working on a book with SFAI in the Asian Art Museum, or uh, in the estate of Carlos Villa, we're working on a publication that's supposed to come out next year in a large traveling retrospective of the artist's work. So while Austin's work as an artist is very much rooted in the technical challenges placed before him by his employer, Studio Leica, Serwin's independent practice as an artist is a lot more rooted in self-reflection on the messages he wants to impart through his art and the best way to do so, though by no means is he any less busy. I think a typical day, it largely involves a lot of thinking for me. I'll have a vision or I'll have an idea. I'll have like a concept, right? That I want to like comment on. I'll often write in the morning or draw in my sketchbook, trying to tease out the right metaphors to position in order to have a viewer who knows nothing about my work or a viewer that knows something about my work for them to like see the work. What's the best metaphor? What's the most efficient metaphor that I can make to get my main topic of interest across, you know? And so I think a lot of my my studio practice is a lot of thinking, a lot of word associations, a lot of writing, and a lot of sketching out of possibilities of what kind of visual I'll use in the work or what kind of materials I would use and, and how I would build them. As someone who's also like working in other sectors of the art world, then I'll usually go and have a job to do. Maybe sit down and work on a, a written project that I'm working on, or I'll go into an, another artist studio and help assist them in their studio, or I'll go gallery sit for a friend. When I'm not doing that, then I'll go into my studio 
and start experimenting. I'll play with materials. I'll constantly refer to my writings in my sketchbook. Well, it's a lot of back and forth between thinking in the mind, thinking and writing, and then thinking in visual material. Now, in doing my preparation for this podcast and looking at some of his artwork, there was a lot of imagery and metaphors related to Filipino-American throughout his body of work. A lot of use of piña, the pineapple fibers used in clothing, and bamboo, which is often used in construction and, as I mentioned, are dances. Electric fans and flip-flop slippers, which are ubiquitous in the tropical island nation, show up as motifs throughout his work. He even has some performance pieces that integrate Filipino language and concepts, such as this one called Generations. As a Filipino-American, I definitely resonated with a lot of these images. But just to be sure, since I'm not necessarily the best at interpreting art, I wanted to hear directly from Sirwin what intentions he was putting into his work. I would say that my art practice is generally centered on different visibility. I call it sort of this like hierarchy of visibilities. Like There's hyper-visibility, invisibility, and then I made up a word called misvisibility to kind of be the visibility between hyper and invisibility. I explore those kinds of visibilities that come out of colonial structures and colonial power. And I do that through like uh, through a Filipino-American lens and Filipino-American visual language and Filipino-American metaphors, you know. So I often will use materials and stories, proverbs that come from my upbringing and come from my identity as a Filipino-American. I'll also fold in a lot of like stories from my family. They're all to kind of like investigate the history of colonization. And I think there's a lot of work that Filipinos and Filipino-Americans, but also just people in general have to do in decolonizing, uh, myself included. Um, there's a lot of things that we have to unlearn and there's a lot of colonial mentality. And I learned this from mentors in grad school is that like artists have to be the ones to like to pry open the world and and get people to investigate themselves but also investigate the world around them and that's what i'm trying to do with my artwork in line with investigating oneself how has serwin grown and changed over the last 10 years how has he stayed the same and what does he see the future holding for him well i'll start off with i think how i've stayed the same I see a lot of similarities in how I operate now to how I did back in high school in terms of spreading myself out across many different areas and social groups and disciplines. Yeah, I worked all those different jobs, you know, not only for obvious reasons like income and building experience, right, as an artist, uh, but I genuinely liked moving around the city and I, I loved activating different parts of my brain with like thinking and writing and building and problem solving in all these different jobs. and. I think that that's kind of stayed the same with me from high school. I, I think I've changed the way that I approach things, though. Um, I've definitely learned in the past year to tighten the scope, focus the lens of broad activity, you know, down. I focused it down to like a more purposeful direction or, pur you know, and to have purposeful friendships and, and to find the places to put purposeful energy. Yeah, I think I've 
I've definitely like had to narrow. I've learned in the past year or two that I have a really hard time now seeing far into the future. You know, I think I'm sort of in a stage of my life and career right now where that Filipino proverb of, you know, to, to be like a bamboo that sways whichever way the wind blows. I remember hearing that. That's exactly my life right now. So I have a hard time seeing myself five to 10 years from now, but it, just because I'm in that stage of bending with the wind right now. Wherever he bends with the wind, I know I'm going to be looking forward to seeing how Serwin's art evolves. For now, Serwin had these few parting thoughts to close things out. So I think first and foremost, I just want to like say to everyone listening that I hope everyone's okay during these like unprecedented times. Like um, to quote a friend of mine uh, who said that um, these are amazingly terrible and terribly amazing times. So to anyone who's listening, I just hope that everyone's cool and all your families are cool too. And I hope that everyone is making the best out of these times as possible. Oh, I, yeah, I want to give a shout out to the teachers, you know, like teachers from high schools. Um, and also shout out to anyone who's, who supported Dan Sell back in the day. There was a long flight to the bay lights from New York Late nights without him by my side, I said Special thanks to Austin and Serwin for sharing their stories with me. Links to their Instagrams and artist websites where you can and definitely should see some of their work will be in the show notes. The opening music was provided by our very own Michael Xavier Bariwan of the class of 2010, aka and Silk. Check his stuff out on SoundCloud and Spotify. The closing track is a throwback to Dancel. Select tracks throughout the episode come from the soundtracks of Avenue Q and Kubo and the Two Strings, as well as Blue Dot Sessions. Editing and production is provided by Ninsboy Media. Also, a quick note, the views and opinions expressed on the show reflect the personal thoughts of those involved alone and do not reflect those of any other groups. Now, in high school, we were always told to aim for the stars. And like those caterpillars Austin talked about earlier this episode, many of us have spread our wings and taken flight into new adventures. In some cases, quite literally taking flight. Next week, we'll talk to two of our classmates whose careers involve taking to the skies be it designing rocket ships or flying some of the largest aircraft in the world. Until then, I'm Paul Bautista, and remember, we run this. And then I, which again, when people are like, you have spiders, that's gross. I'm like, well, the ones I have are blue and pink. And they're like, wait, spiders can be blue and pink? I'm like, yeah, you should look at them. They're cool.